Well, good morning, Philly Bible. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, as we open Your Word, Father, may its message resonate deep within our souls. And Father, I pray that Your Word would give us great joy this morning. That we would be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy and love of God. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't go to the mall very much uh, anymore. Um, I don't have a lot of reason to go. You know, there's Amazon. And uh, if I want to buy something, I just get online and buy it. You know, I'm not going to wander around the mall. But, uh, but sometimes uh, I will go and wander the mall. Karen will want something and we'll go wander around or we'll want to actually uh, poke around a game shop or something like that and uh, we'll wander the mall. And there are always these people down by the anchor stores, you know what I'm talking about? They've got their little clipboard. And my standard method in dealing with these people is to avert my eyes and pretend I didn't see them, right? Kind of look down, you know, start engaging in deep conversation all of a sudden, right? Uh, thinking, surely they won't talk to me if I don't acknowledge that they're here, right? And they always want like 10 minutes so they can ask my opinion about something. Now, y'all know me. You know I'm not shy about giving my opinion about anything. <laughs> but uh, I really don't want to give my opinion to the mall survey taker, right? Um, you know, I'm not interested. That's not why I'm there. I'm there, if I'm a man, I'm, and I'm there to shop, I'm there to go into the store that I want to buy it at, obtain the item, and leave. I'm not there to hang out, right? If I'm there with Karen, you know, I've learned to kind of adapt and go, okay, well, where's a chair? You know, I can find to sit down and enjoy this experience, and we'll find a coffee shop and all that kind of thing, right? Um, but, and mostly, one of the reasons I find those guys annoying is because they ask such inane questions, right? Like, so what do you think about the new lighting over the food court? And I'm like, you know, I didn't notice and I don't care, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but if maybe, maybe it would, I would be more interested in standing there and giving them 10 minutes of my life that I can't get back, if they would ask uh, some questions that were actually significant, right? That actually had meaning and value outside of the confines of Northwoods or, or wherever we happen to be, right? Uh, you know, what if they, instead of asking you, you know, so we put in a new restaurant, what do you, how do you like it? Have you been? Uh, what was the food like? How was the service, etc. right? I don't care. Um, but it, what if they ask you this kind of a question? You actually stood and they gave you, you gave them 10 minutes and they said to you, you know, we're taking a survey and we want to find out what you think is the greatest gift in all the world. Well, that's a little more thought provoking, isn't it? So let me ask you, I'm not a survey taker, but let me ask you, what do you think is the greatest gift in all the world? You know, some people... Some people would immediately answer, well, you know, the greatest gift, and they would name some material thing, right? They would go, well, you know, if you're picking out stuff for me, uh, you know, like a Bugatti Chiron, 
you know, it goes top speed, 275 miles an hour on a straight road. I want one, right? It's a two and a half million dollar car. I don't have the money, but I want to drive it, right? I want to try this at one point in my life before I die. I would like to go 275 miles an hour in a car with me behind the wheel. That just sounds like fun, right? Uh, some people might say, well, no, you know, if I, if I really wanted a great gift, I would want, you know, like a billion dollars, you know, like be a, a Walton heir or something, right? And like a billion dollars to just do whatever I wanted. But you know, the thing is with material things, all of that stuff eventually goes away, right? Cars rust, even nice cars. A uh, billion dollars um, would be nice. And by the way, if any of you are writing checks, I'll take one, right? But uh, at the same time, there's no U-Haul behind the hearse, is there? You can't take it with you. And it's certainly not worth devoting your life to the pursuit of it. Well, some people, if you're wiser, you know, you might think, well, you know, life itself is actually the greatest gift. Life itself is a great gift. Because you have however many years, however many days or weeks or months or years the Lord gives you, you have all of this time to celebrate and to enjoy and to experience life. And it is. It's a great gift. But other people, if, they're, if they thought about it, might say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, actually, a better gift is freedom. And you know that it's a better gift than life because men and women have all over the world, all throughout history, willingly laid down their lives to experience freedom for even just a moment. To be free. To be at liberty to do that which is right, that which gives life meaning freedom from tyranny is, a, is one of the best gifts. The wisest of all people might say if they really thought about it, well, no, the best of all possible gifts is love. Because loving relationships with other people are really what gives life its meaning and makes life really worth living. You can have life without freedom and still have it be worth living if you have love between you and other people. That's the best gift. And those are, honestly, those are three of probably the best answers that, humanly speaking, we can come up with. But you know what the greatest gift of all is? The one that gives you all three. The, the one that gives you eternal life. The one that sets you free from sin. And the one that puts you in the love of God and into loving relationships with lots and lots of other people. What are we talking about? We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift of all. Uh, grace is how we get that gift. It's a free gift. Grace is what Philip Yancey said is the last best word. And it is. It's the last best word. Grace. That you get something not because of what you did, but because of what God did for you. 
And not because you deserved it, but in spite of the fact that you did not. Amen? So I want to look with you this morning at grace, and specifically about how God's grace alone is the best gift that ever has been given, ever is given, ever will be given to any person on the face of the planet. So if you've got your Bible, we want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. We want to look at all of the first ten verses here in Ephesians. And let's just see them together. And you were dead in the, trans, in the trans, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These three verses are a description of what you and I, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, what we used to be. It is the natural state of every person who has descended from Adam and Eve. If you are a human being on this planet, then when you are coming out of the womb, this is you. This is me. And this is what we will remain unless God intervenes. Verse 1 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin's penalty is what? It is the wages of sin is death. Okay? So you are, because you are so uh, completely suffused from in every portion of your body, mind, and soul with sin, you are already dead in your sins. You know what they say when they when they're about to execute a man as who's as he's walking down to the to the death house where they jab that needle in his arm or they have the he takes the long walk with a short drop. When they do that, the guy walks out of the cell and he says, they say about him, dead man walking. Right? He is already dead. He has not been executed yet, but he is a dead man walking. That is what Scripture says about you and I. Before we met Jesus, we are dead men, dead women, walking around. We not only have rejected God, but we want nothing to do with Him. We are dead in our trans transgressions, our trespasses, and our sins. There is nothing that we do that points us to the Lord whatsoever. And we have the sentence of death hanging over us even while we breathe. On our own, you and I had no more hope of being anything but dead in our sins than a man in a drawer at the morgue has of walking around. We were dead. And verses 2 and 3 tell us more about what being dead in our sin means. It means first that we walked. You see that? In which you once walked. Uh, 
in which Joe once walked, in which Rick once walked, in which Karen once walked, in which Cindy once walked. Fill your name in there. When it says you, put your name. In which you used to live. Walking is one of the the Bible's favorite metaphors for describing how a person lives. You know, elsewhere we're told, walk in love. Walk by the Spirit that you will not gratify the desires of your flesh, etc. So walking, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with His Son. Right? Uh, walking is this idea that of how you live your life. Well, what did, how did you live your life before you were a Christian? You were walking in the way of this world. The way of life that we were following was dedicated to obeying and to submitting to what should be the great the three great enemies of your soul if you look at your text here verses two and three says following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air who's that satan the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, another description of Satan. Among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So, in other words, the Christian has three great enemies. They are the world. In other words, the, the non-Christian world with all of its sinners and systems that are dedicated to and built around rejection of what God would call us to do and relationship with Him. That's, your number, that's enemy number one. Enemy number two, the devil, which is here called the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And your own flesh, your own sin nature, the desires of your body and mind that are alien to and separated from and separating you from God. And instead of rejecting the world, the flesh, and the devil, what did we do? We followed them. We said, hey, if the world has an idea, I like it. Right? If my body wants to do something, I'm going to do it. In fact, you will even hear people tell you today that, that wanting to do something that is sinful and having wanted to do it for as long as you can remember is justifying of that activity. Right? Well, I, I do this because I've always wanted to. Does that justify sin? No. Even if you call it an orientation, that doesn't justify sin. It's rebellion. Because your body and your mind naturally want to do that which is wicked. The world wants you to do that which is wicked. The devil wants you to do that which is wicked. And when we are sinners, when we are dead in our sins, we do not know that this is wicked. And so we just follow along. We're like dead salmon. We just float downstream along with every other dead fish, right? We do what everybody else does. And it all seems right to us. And it all seems defensible. And it all seems very normal. Why? 
because we're dead in our sins. And it has affected us, body and mind, and what we want to do and how we want to do it. And everything in our world is devoted to following the ways of Satan, the ways of the flesh, the ways of our world. And you are not going to find your way to Jesus by doing what you used to do. And notice uh, what we are called. He said, uh, when, when you follow Satan, you are one of the sons of disobedience. Uh, it's a poetic way of when the, when the Bible uses the son of something, uh, it's a poetic way of saying that you are characterized by that thing. So if you're a son of disobedience, you're someone who's characterized by disobedience toward God. Just like, you know, when James and John, they were the two angry guys that were the disciples of Jesus. You remember them? And Jesus gives them a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder, right? Because they're always thundering about something, right? They're the guys that you can always uh, count on to uh, not labor long under the burden of an unexpressed thought, right? Um, They are just popping off everywhere. And Jesus says, you guys are the sons of thunder, right? Uh, You know, uh, there are some Samaritans that don't want to follow Jesus. And and, uh, and James and John say, Lord, you want us to pray that God would nuke them? (laughs) Okay. Uh, No, don't do that, (laughs) right? Uh, They're the sons of thunder. Later on, these two guys become the most gentle most loving guys in the world. In fact, the thing that John says over and over and over is, Beloved, love one another. Love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Right? Uh, these guys get transformed by the grace of God. But the point is, is that when it says, we were the sons of disobedience, we were the followers of Satan, it's not giving us a compliment. Okay? We were people who enjoyed and reveled in and relished our disobedience toward God. And as a result of that, as a result of that, we were by nature children of wrath. Again, a poetic way of saying this is what characterizes us. That we were people who deserved and were subject to and under the sentence of God's wrath. That we all deserve to die and go to hell forever and ever and ever. That's what we were. Now, if that isn't depressing, uh, okay, let me just ask you, why is Paul telling us all these things? It is because if you do not know where you came from and you do not know why salvation is desperately needed, then you will miss out on the magnificence of God's grace to you. Paul spends twice as long talking about God's grace as he does about our sin. And he talks about our sin and what we were for three verses 
he spends the next, the next seven verses talking about how glorious, how magnificent, how fantastic, how wonderful God's grace has been to us in contrast to what we were. And when I don't want us to miss it, because God's grace far exceeds, far outshines, far overwhelms the sin and the rebellion that we were in. Look at verse 4. This is, this is the, the two best words on this passage are the first two. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, write in your Bible right here, but God. Circle those words, underline them, highlight them, you know, put sparkles around them, whatever it is that you do to highlight the fact that these two words are important because what what Paul is doing there with those two words is saying there is a massive contrast between what God has done and what we did. What we did was rebelled and sinned and revolted and acted as traitors and sinners against the God who made us. And we deserved every bit of wrath and punishment that He could dish out. But God, and look at how it, has described, it describes Him here, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Not getting what you do deserve. You know, like if if you are, are if you are doing ninety seven miles an hour down down twenty nine, and the lights come on and the cop pulls you over, and he says to you, "You know, uh, Mr. Horn, I think your speedometer must be broken, because it appears to me on my little radar screen that you were exceeding the speed limit by approximately sixty seven miles per hour." Now, I'm not going to write you a ticket, but I am telling you that if you do that again, there will be a ticket. What have I just gotten? Mercy. Right? What I deserve is a big ticket and a court date and possibly the loss of my car. Right? But what I got was mercy. What I got was mercy. I did not get what I did deserve. Why did he do that? Why was God merciful to us? The, the verse goes on to tell us because of the 
great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, see, a lot of people think that Christianity starts like this, that, that first you behave, and then God loves you. That what you do is you work really hard and you clean your life up and you do all the good things that you were supposed to do and then if you do them well enough and long enough, then God loves you. That is not true. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. It is in the midst of while our rebellion against God is still ongoing that He is merciful and loving to us. And so Paul rightly speaks when he says, because of His great love. His great love. That while we were still sinning, God loved us. God loved us. God's love is unconditional is not based on whether we are good, but the fact that He is good. He is good, and He loves us in the midst of our sin, and He is rich in mercy. And in the midst of that, it says, He made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in our sin, but God brought us to life again. He made us alive together with Christ. And, and He put us in relationship, in other words, to Jesus. So that we could have, instead of death, instead of wrath, instead of punishment, instead of being separated from Him, we have eternal life in Christ. And we are related to Christ, not based on our goodness, but because of God's mercy and love. And we receive life with Christ because of the relationship with Christ that we possess. And Paul explains what that means in the end of verse 5. It's this great little set-off phrase. By grace, you have been saved. That's an important phrase too. You ought to highlight that one because it's in here a couple times. And it's fantastic. By grace, in other words, by a free gift. By a free gift. By something you don't earn, by something which you do not deserve, by something, in fact, of which you deserve the antithesis, God saved you. By grace. He simply gave it to you because He loved you. Not because you deserved it. Not because you were a nice person. Not because you behaved really well and you were a nice, you know, a nice religious person who went to church and gave a lot of money and, you know, served at the soup kitchen or whatever, okay? But because God loved you. God loved you. Why did He love you? I don't know. Because He loved you. That's the magnificence of the grace of God, that there was nothing lovable about us, but God loved us anyway. He loved us anyway, simply because He is that kind of a God. That He loves us, He is rich in mercy, He abounds in love, and He pours it out on sinful people who hate Him. If that does not 
give you cause to make your heart sing, men and women. There is no one in my, in my world ever that loved me before I was ever nice to them. Except maybe my parents, you know. And I don't know if they loved me all the time when I was growing up, right? It's a challenge sometimes, right? Some of you have had older kids, you know, kids like out of diapers. Sometimes it's hard to love them, right? Sometimes it's hard to love them when they're in diapers. Heard somebody say, you know, God, God made kids little so that they wouldn't kill us and made them cute so we wouldn't kill them, right? <laughs> but, uh, and that's true, right? Uh, but God loved us when we were as nasty as we could be. When we were running as hard away from Him as we could run. When we were, not because we were lovable, but because He loved us. He loves us. And, it, and be sure to notice, by the way, you know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time usually on the grammar of the sentences in your Bible. But this is important. By grace you have been saved. That is what's known as a perfect tense. Okay? Perfect tense denotes completed action in the past. In other words, you are not getting your salvation. You have right now your salvation by grace. You have already gotten it. If you put your trust in Jesus, you got your salvation already. And the good news about that just gets better and better. Look at this. It says, And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means the most amazing thing you can imagine. That from God's perspective, your salvation is so secure that it is just as if you are already present in heaven, seated at the right hand of Jesus now. That your salvation is so guaranteed, so secure, so complete, so finished from God's perspective, it is as if eternity is already here and you are already in it. That's what that means when it says you have been saved. It is that, that God is going to glorify you and that reality is so complete that it is from God's perspective as if it has already occurred. Even though we haven't seen it yet in our experience. From God's perspective, it is as if it has already occurred. In other words, your position is as someone who is already reigning with Christ in heaven. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You have been saved. You have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. And then verse 7 tells us why. So that in the coming ages, in other words, in eternity, for all eternity, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness 
toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, so that God might reveal how amazingly good He is to us forever. That He might... You know, here's the thing. I think... I think what we experience here in this life, if I can use this analogy, is like what we get of, of, of our relationship with Jesus is almost like a kid with a big sandbox and a wading pool. And, you know, when you're a little kid, man, a sandbox and a wading pool is great stuff, right? I mean, I can... I can make sand castles. I can stick firecrackers on those little green army guys and have you know explosions as they take the beach and all this kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, don't, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I can have all kinds of fun with my sandbox. I can get in that, in that water as I'm running around the yard. I can get the grass floating on top from all the grass clippings and my feet going in and out of the water when my feet get cold. You know, I can have so much fun in a wading pool, right? Um, and I can have so much fun with the sandbox. But when we get to eternity, it is like going to the beach at the ocean. We get this much of a taste of the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God right now. But there is an ocean of it waiting to be seen. And it will be on display to us for eternity. For eternity. That God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That we're going to be face to face with God and He's going to pour out everything that there is to know about Him, about how much He loves us, about how much joy there is in relationship with Him. We're going to see it all. And He saved us because He loves us in order that He might put on display for eternity His goodness to us. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And what we experience right now is just a foretaste of heaven. And then He tells us how this happened. For by grace, you, again, have been saved. That's important, that verb right there. You have received it through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Verse 8 and 9, if you haven't memorized those verses, you should memorize those verses. But look closely at verse 8. You know what you you had to do with your salvation? Nothing. Nothing. You did all the sinning. God did all the saving. Amen? That's it. That's what you had to do with it. In fact, if you look closely at the text, okay, by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And then it says, and this... Now circle that little word, this. That's a pronoun. You know what a pronoun's function is in the sentence? Replaces the noun that comes before it. You know what the this refers to? 
your faith. That even the faith by which you believe in Christ is the gift of God. God imparted to you the faith by which you believe that you might be a recipient of His grace. In other words, our salvation is not dependent on us whatsoever. So that no one can boast about anything. They can't boast that they saved themselves. They can't boast that, that, well, I was among the smart ones who put my trust in Jesus. No. Even the faith by which you believe is a gift of God. Our salvation is by grace because of the mercy of God from beginning to end, and we already have it. Lots and lots of people think that, it, that somehow eternal life is something you get when you die. It's something you already possess. It is something that is so certain to happen, it is as if you are already there. And what's going to happen on the day that you die is that the curtain is going to fall and you're going to see life as it has always been. That God is really real. That He really loves you. And that you are finally home. But in the meantime, there's a, another reason that God, having saved you, has not just taken you home already. And that's verse 10. That we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is a word, you could translate it masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. We are the, the display model, if you will, of God's grace. We are the thing that He has created to, be, to stay here to show God's grace in the here and now that other people might experience it as well. Amen? That other people might come to understand the greatness and goodness and mercy and love and grace of God and might likewise also experience the salvation we enjoy. And so he says that you have been created to do good works and God prepared in advance that you should do them. What are they? What are those good works? Number one, believe. Believe. If, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then the only verses in this text that directly apply to you are the first three that tell you what you are and the fact that you are condemned. If you want verses 4 through 10 to apply to you, then you need to believe. You need to utilize the faith that God is offering to you and put your trust in Him. Believe in Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, that you might experience new life, not just now, but forever and ever, and be a testimony of God's grace. Number two, 
rejoice. Rejoice. Men and women, our names are written in heaven. And we are going there. In fact, we are already, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, seated with Him in glory now. It is so certain to happen. Rejoice. A sour, bitter, angry Christian is the worst testimony in the world. Right? Because it is in complete conflict with everything that is true of us. Right? Whatever happens in this world does not matter, ultimately. We have reasons to rejoice every day. Every day that we're breathing, we can rejoice. And on the day we stop breathing, we'll rejoice even more. So rejoice. Last thing, do good works. We're not saved based on good works, but we are saved to do good works. Right? We are not saved by our works, but we are saved that we might do good works is what the scripture says, right? What are some of those? We're saved to be a blessing to the world. And so there's a million ways that can, that can look. But one of the primary ones is this, and we should never forget this. You know, when Jesus healed the, the Gerizim demoniac, and this guy that had all these demons and nobody could bind him, and here comes Jesus and he casts them all out. And you know what Jesus says to the guy? Go home and tell your family how much God has done for you. Can I give us all a word of encouragement? Go home and tell your family how much God has done for you. Go home and tell your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends who don't know Jesus how much God has done for you. Feed the poor. Care for the needy. Care for the orphan. The widow. Deliver the enslaved. Counsel the depressed. Live in holiness. Do good works. The whole book is full of things that follow as a result of our faith. Amen? We're saved to do them. Let's go forth and make it happen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we celebrate with great gratitude and joy the things that You have done for us in Christ. We pray that we might go forth from this place celebrating and rejoicing over the salvation that we have and that our joy would overflow in love for other people in a million different ways. That we might declare the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And Father, we pray um, that as we go from this place, that You would be pleased uh, to do good works through us as You have prepared in advance to do. And Father, we thank You for salvation by grace alone. In Jesus' name, Amen.